Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Harwell Wells, professor of law at Temple University. We'll be discussing his article, Shareholder Meetings and Freedom Rides, The Story of Peck versus Greyhound, which is forthcoming in the Seattle University Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Harwell, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Harwell, this article is about a fascinating dual history of civil rights and a history of securities regulation. I'd like to start the conversation by taking those two strands of history separately. First, could you introduce to the listeners the core story, the core history of this article, which is the journey of reconciliation, also known as the first freedom ride, and the personality, the roles of some of the key players behind that journey of reconciliation, James Peck and Bayard Rustin. It might seem an unusual place to begin an article about securities law, but listeners will see where we're going. It really begins with the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was and might still be the major American sort of radical pacifist organization. I hope that is not taken as a pejorative description. Founded during World War I as an organization to oppose American militarism in the 1920s and 1930s, it continued its vigorous opposition to American military involvement in abroad and indeed continued that through World War II. It's also notable historically because it was the organization that more than any other brought Gandhian pacifism to the United States in the 1930s, which obviously Gandhi had been developing in India for a couple of decades in opposition to British rule. And Gandhian pacifism was a little different than the traditional pacifism that has always existed in the U.S. or in America, going back to Quakerism, and that it imagined pacifism not merely as an individual registering opposition to, say, conscription, but a way of creating active opposition to the particular social injustice it opposed, dramatizing it very publicly. About 1942, the Fellowship of Reconciliation was very involved in trying to support conscientious objectors and opposing U.S. involvement in World War II, but it also was continuing an opposition to racial discrimination, which it also had a history of doing. And in 1942, a couple of organizers from the FOR organized the Congress of Racial Equality, beginning in Chicago, as a way of not leaving the Fellowship of Reconciliation, but as a way of focusing their opposition to racism. And in 1947, after the end of World War II, they began planning what became the Journey of Reconciliation. It's remembered today as the first Freedom Ride, as a way of opposing segregation in transportation in the American South. In 1946, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case Morgan v. Virginia, had held that segregation in interstate transport, that is, transport between states, was a violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause of the United States Constitution, and the Fellowship of Reconciliation wanted to dramatize both the Morgan decision and the fact it was not being followed. So they planned for 16 men, there was some concern about getting women involved at this time, 16 men, eight African-American, eight white, would ride segregated buses through the Upper South as a way of not just opposing segregation, but of dramatizing its absurdity. And here we come across two of the individuals who were involved in the journey who also became major figures in, frankly, 20th century American history. 
The better known is Bayard Rustin, who became a famous African-American civil rights leader, frankly, into the 1980s and 1990s, is remembered today as an aide to Martin Luther King, as organizer of the March on Washington in 1963, but was also very much opposed to the war and, of course, was also very much opposed to World War II, was an objector. He was eventually imprisoned for refusing to register for the draft, and he'd become involved in the fellowship that way. Rustin was involved, and so was a lesser-known figure, James Peck, who was white, and I mention their races because it eventually plays into our story, who was a product of privilege, had been an undergraduate at Harvard, but had then became involved in various American left-wing organizations. And in 1947, they were two of the 16 individuals who were involved with the journey of reconciliation. But before they went on the journey, before they left in the buses in early 1947, they did something that would also have a very surprising result, which is they bought shares in a corporation, Greyhound Bus Lines. That's an introduction to the civil rights part of this story. Let's shift briefly to some of the securities law history, which I think you've alluded to is going to start intersecting with the story in just a moment. But if we were to read a state corporate statute naively without knowing anything about corporate law or securities law, if we were to just read that statute, we might come away with the impression of once a year, all the shareholders of the company are going to get together and hash out the policy of the company in the years to come. They might vote for directors for the years to come. It's a little bit like a town hall type arrangement. Now, of course, that's not the reality of most large companies, certainly not publicly traded companies. I wondered if you could talk about how that platonic ideal of shareholder democracy that we see in state corporate law isn't the case. And then maybe if you could introduce the development of the SEC's proxy rules that have tried to maintain some semblance of shareholder democracy in the face of dispersed shareholding and the fact that you can't get all the shareholders of a company together in a room for a town hall style meeting once a year. So in the 19th century, you did see many corporations, from what we can tell, from looking at state statutes, from looking at corporate law treatises, which seem to describe what's going on in corporations. It does appear as though those corporations are actually able to have shareholders meet once a year, and the shareholder meeting was indeed imagined as a very democratic, deliberative space. This made sense because most of the corporations we're talking about, there were some exceptions, railroads, for instance, but most of them didn't have that many shareholders, and the shareholders tended to be concentrated geographically. So they could choose to attend the annual meeting and indeed talk over corporate policy if they wanted. Obviously, as we know as corporate law scholars, by the 20th century, this was no longer true of many of the giant corporations in the United States. They would have thousands or even tens of thousands of shareholders, certainly by the early 20th century. Those shareholders couldn't get together and meet and indeed, it was economically irrational for someone who held only one or a few shares of a corporation to go to a shareholder meeting and speak from the floor. It wasn't worth their time. The problem for corporate management was that built into the corporation law, as you mentioned, was still the assumption that shareholders would be voting at the meeting and that there were requirements, for instance, quorum requirements, which meant that shares had to be voted at the meeting or the meeting wouldn't be able to accomplish business. So a proxy mechanism developed in which management would ask shareholders for the right to vote their shares, giving them very little information about what actually was going to occur at a shareholders meeting, and shareholders would often grant the proxy. 
as the classic work on corporation law, Burley and Means 1932 noted that while the proxy mechanism existed, it didn't exist to empower shareholders. It was basically a way for shareholders to hand their power off to corporate controllers, usually corporation management. But with the federal securities laws being adopted in 1933 and 1934, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, was empowered to hand down rules for proxy voting. And while they waited a few years during the 1930s to do that, eventually they began requiring certain information to be provided to shareholders in order for a valid proxy solicitation to occur. And starting in the late 1930s, a few shareholders of these giant corporations began to realize that they still possess the right to go to the annual meeting, to make proposals from the floor of the annual meeting. And they also realized that if they told the corporation in advance they were going to do this, the corporation would be required under the securities laws when it asked for shareholders' proxies to tell shareholders this dissident shareholder is planning to make a proposal from the floor. So that suddenly the securities laws in sort of interaction with state corporation law had created what could be a powerful mechanism the shareholder proposal, whereby a shareholder could notify management, I'm going to give this proposal at the annual meeting. And management under many circumstances was required to circulate that proposal to all the shareholders when it asked for their votes. Here we see that Peck and Rustin did this strange thing before they took the first freedom ride, which was to purchase a share of stock in a public company. And here we see that at that time, having a share of stock in a public company could have some vestigial governance rights for a shareholder. With those two strands of this story established, can we talk a little bit about the combination of civil rights and securities regulation history? What were Rustin and Peck planning to do with the shares that they bought? How did that intersect with the object of the Freedom Ride? If we think of the Freedom Ride itself as a way to dramatize the problem with segregation on Southern transportation, they likely focused on buses because it was the most easily accessible means of transport for them. And as I mentioned, the Fellowship of Reconciliation in CORE, which came out of it, were not just interested in individuals making protests conscientiously, but in creating drama, creating a public spectacle around it. One example would be during the journey itself. It wasn't just a matter of African-American riders sitting in seats reserved for whites, but white riders sitting in areas supposedly reserved for African-Americans, thereby appending the racial hierarchy, which seemed to undergird public transportation in the American South. And it's a little difficult at this point to tell exactly how Peck and Rustin stumbled across the share as giving them power. Peck was an heir to a fairly large fortune. At least we know he had a trust fund. So it's possible he figured out some of that at the time. But for whatever way it came to their attention, Peck and Rustin in 1948 decided another way to generate publicity was to attend a shareholder meeting to attend a meeting, in this case, of Greyhound. And I want to stop for a second and point out that this is an interesting moment where we see securities laws and the civil rights movement, the journey of reconciliation, shaping one another. Now, one question which I never got completely answered in my research is how Bayard Rustin got involved in this protest. That is, if Peck alone was an heir, I was actually familiar with wealth in the stock market, Why did Baird Rustin, who didn't appear to have any money, buy a share? But once we look at what the journey of reconciliation was doing 
as insisting on interracial activity as a protest against unjust laws, then we realize it was very important that the individuals who were involved in the Greyhound protest modeled that interracial relationship. So it was both Peck, a white man, and Rustin, an African-American man, going to the shareholder meeting. On the other hand, when we actually look at the journey of reconciliation and its ride through the South, a number of arrests were made. Indeed, Rustin eventually served on a chain gang. But all of the arrests were made on a Trailways bus. But Trailways wasn't a publicly traded corporation. It was a federation of independently owned transport companies, none of which appeared to have shares traded publicly. If so, if Peck and Rustin wanted to make a protest at all, using the shareholder proposal, they would have to do it against Greyhound, which did have publicly traded shares. In 1948, Peck and another individual, not Baird Rustin, but actually the head of the NAACP in Delaware, because Rustin apparently was away, attended the Greyhound Bus Company meeting in Wilmington, Delaware. They went to the meeting. They made a proposal from the floor asking Greyhound to stop segregating its buses. They also picketed outside, thus combining two different ways of protesting Greyhound's particular policies. But in 1948, they were told that their proposal was not going to be considered at the meeting because they had not provided any notice in advance of it. They just went to the Greyhound meeting, attended as they had the right to do because they were shareholders, but there needed to be advance notice. Peck and Rustin went away, and from what we can tell, they studied the shareholder proposal rule. Now, in 1949, in the spring of 1949, when the annual meeting was held, they didn't go back to Greyhound's annual meeting, apparently because Rustin might have at that time been serving 30 days on a chain gang for being involved in the journey of reconciliation. But late in 1949, the two of them had clearly learned enough about the shareholder proposal rule to file a proposal with Greyhound saying, we want you to end Jim Crow segregation on your buses. And we want, as part of the shareholder proposal rule adopted by the SEC, we expect you to send our proposal to all of Greyhound shareholders in your, the company's, proxy solicitation so they can vote on it. Greyhound was upset. One can understand corporate management didn't want public attention drawn to their activities and refused to include it in their proxy. And the SEC, which had given its attorneys power to oversee this, agreed in early 1950 that Greyhound didn't have to send the proposal to its shareholders in its proxy, but only because Peck and Rustin had waited too late to file the final document with Greyhound, which suggested that maybe if they filed it timely the next time around, they would be able to send their proposal opposing Jim Crow segregation to all of Greyhound's shareholders. Peck and Rustin, their first attempt at a shareholder proposal didn't work out because they failed to meet some of the requirements of the process. But it sounds like there was some hope that if they dotted all of their I's and crossed all of their T's, that their proposal would be carried in management's proxy statement the next year. Did that happen? And how did some of the various gatekeepers or potential gatekeepers for their proposal being carried in the proxy statement, how did those folks react? It did not happen. In late 1950, Peck and Rustin again filed a proposal with Greyhound. And I should have mentioned earlier that by this time, a fairly formal process had been established by which if Greyhound decided not to carry the shareholder proposal, they needed to notify the SEC of that. So Greyhound indeed notified the SEC that it had received the proposal from Peck and Rustin. And this time, 
The SEC said that Greyhound could exclude the proposal from its proxy because it was of a general social, political, or economic nature. In other words, it didn't relate specifically to Peck and Rustin's concerns about the Greyhound Corporation and their role as shareholders of Greyhound. Now, there was a problem with this, which is that Peck and Rustin had indeed crafted their shareholder proposal to talk about specific policies Greyhound had adopted. In this case, Greyhound had a policy of segregating its interstate transport in the American South. And they also said this is specifically harming Greyhound by pointing to various lawsuits that had been filed against Greyhound. When the SEC turned down this proposal in early 1951, Peck and Rustin contemplated a lawsuit and eventually filed a lawsuit against Greyhound that became Peck v. Greyhound. It's not clear to me, by the way, why Rustin wasn't a fellow plaintiff in that case. And I think one of the reasons that securities law scholars have overlooked this case is because Rustin, who was otherwise very involved in this entire campaign, was not a plaintiff to the case that comes most readily to hand for securities law scholars. In late 1950, an attorney from the Securities and Exchange Commission, following the process set out in SEC rules, agreed with Greyhound's judgment that it could exclude Peck and Rustin's shareholder proposal. Peck and Rustin decided to go to court. And there was some possibility that they might win a court case if they could ever actually get Greyhound squarely in front of a court and argue that they were indeed not allowed to exclude the shareholder proposal. But initially, the court in Peck v. Greyhound held for Greyhound because they argued that Peck had not appealed that staff attorney's decision to the full SEC. So at the end of 1950 and in early 1951, Peck and Rustin indeed appealed the decision to the Securities and Exchange Commission, which affirmed the staff decision that Greyhound was allowed to exclude the shareholder proposal without giving Peck and Rustin the opportunity to argue in front of the commission itself. Peck and Rustin began to plan for further litigation. Indeed, they filed a lawsuit against the SEC. But even as they were doing this, the SEC did something more radical. The SEC changed the shareholder proposal rule. Whereas before, the rule held that proposals could only be excluded if they were of a general social, political, or economic nature. In other words, if they weren't related to the particular business of the corporation at hand. The SEC changed the rule to say that proposals could be excluded if they were of a racial or religious nature. And at the end of 1951, the SEC adopted the rule and indeed changed that language. And suddenly, shareholder proposals of the kind that Peck and Rustin had planned were banned under SEC rules. The SEC, in what I perceive as an attempt to avoid racial issues in shareholder proposals, had in fact written race into the American securities laws. And it's especially striking that this occurred in 1952, which is immediately before the great upswing of the modern civil rights movement. In effect, the SEC had taken the shareholder proposal away from activists who might want to use the proposal as a way of protesting corporations' civil rights policies. So in the early 1950s, the SEC writes race into the securities laws. It constructs the rule to really disable shareholder activism around these pressing social issues. What impact or lack of impact did that have on the course of the civil rights movement? And what impact or lack of impact perhaps has that had on shareholder democracy and the course of securities regulation? 
It's a great question, and it's very difficult to figure out because it's very tough to figure out what would have happened if history went otherwise. I will say that the high hopes that I think someone like Peck and Reston had, and that advocates of shareholder democracy have had in later decades, that shareholders would have somehow rallied around and asked the corporation to behave in an ethical manner, probably would not have occurred. Shareholder proposals almost always lost during this period. That being said, the correspondence that Greyhound, for instance, wrote to the SEC at this period shows they were very scared of being painted as pro-segregation, and that one of the reasons they wanted to exclude Peck and Rustin's proposal from their proxy statement altogether was the fear that it would be used as a cudgel to try to force them to adopt desegregationist policies. So I don't think we can discount the likelihood that shareholder proposals targeting particular corporations might have been at least a useful additional lever for many civil rights groups during the 1950s and 1960s. And the SEC took away that powerful tool. Now, I will say that occasional shareholder activism around shareholder meetings still occurred in the 1950s and 1960s, most notably in 1960 when the sit-ins began in the American South, when African-American students first in Greensboro, but soon across the American South, began sitting in at lunch counters demanding desegregation. When that occurred, Peck, who is obviously still around, he was around through the 1990s, Peck and a number of other individuals did go to shareholder meetings of those chain stores, meetings typically held in the North, and both protested companies' segregation policies from the floor of the shareholder meeting and picketed outside. They still recognized the shareholder meeting as a location where they could gain good publicity and good visibility as a way of highlighting particular corporations' segregationist policies or refusal, one could also say, to challenge segregation laws in the Deep South. What eventually occurred, however, is that the ban on racial shareholder proposals still lasted really until the early 1970s, when congressional pressure finally caused the SEC to, first of all, weaken its rule and then eliminate the provision discussing racial proposals altogether in 1976. As it happens, I believe their proposal to change it came out on July 7th, 1976, three days after the bicentennial. But it's still a powerful moment. And I think this story that we tell of Peck v. Greyhound is still very important. I think it's important in part because it brings to two areas of law that I think in the popular imagination are usually seen as pretty separate. Corporation and securities laws and the history of the civil rights movement and shows us how there are indeed connections to be drawn between them. I think as well, and I'm going to speculate a little more here, I think it also shows us that the line that many of us as corporation law scholars accept between legitimate and illegitimate shareholder proposals, between shareholder proposals that indeed come out of one's ownership of shares, as opposed to shareholder proposals that are just of a general social, economic, or political nature, is more artificial than we think. That in fact, Peck and Rustin had written a proposal that was aimed very specifically at Greyhound that pointed out the ways that Greyhound was being harmed by its insistence of following Southern laws that mandated intrastate segregation, and also by Greyhound's refusal to follow the Morgan decision and its insistence that it needed to continue segregating even interstate transport in the American South. That, nonetheless, was an issue that was legitimately raised 
by Peck and Rustin because it would be of concern for shareholders who wanted their corporation to behave differently, to adopt different policies. But the SEC still stepped in and held that was an illegitimate subject for shareholder consideration. In other words, there wasn't anything about the nature of the corporation that dictated Greyhound's decision that it didn't want to include that. It was simply Greyhound avoiding bad publicity for a policy that Greyhound nonetheless had consciously adopted. Are there any key takeaways that you would like listeners to have from this conversation or from the paper, or are there any open questions that you hope to answer in the future? As far as a takeaway, especially because our listenership is probably largely corporation law scholars, I hope we will see corporation law as a broader field touching on more areas than perhaps we sometimes do. I think this, in one sense, is a very straightforward corporation law article. We talk about the shareholder proposal rule adopted by the SEC. We talk about how it was applied at a particular point in time by a classic agency, which we studied, the Securities and Exchange Commission. At the same time, we can see how the decisions of the SEC and the nature of state corporation law touch on areas that might surprise us, such as the desire of many shareholders, or at least the desire of a group of shareholders, to protest the civil rights policies of a corporation. And as far as open questions, I myself see this article as drawing on work by a few earlier scholars who try to see race is in some ways threaded through parts of corporation and securities laws. And I hope it'll be one of the works that'll open the doors for future scholars to continue that pursuit and to ask questions about the complex relationship between corporation and securities laws and issues of race and civil rights in the United States. Our guest today has been Harwell Wells, professor of law at Temple University. We've discussed his article, Shareholder Meetings and Freedom Rides, The Story of Peck versus Greyhound, which is forthcoming in the Seattle University Law Review. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Harwell, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.